All right, if you have your Bible, let's open them to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Anybody a big fan of the book of Romans? Anybody just like, when I say we're going to study Romans, you get really excited? If so, say amen. amen. Yeah. Romans is one of those books that, I mean, really, in terms... All of the Bible is God's Word, right? So all of it is super important. All of it is super relevant. But there's something about the impact that the particular book of the Bible, the book of Romans, something about the impact that that particular book has had in the lives of some of the most influential people in, in, in Christianity over just the course of history. I mean, just thinking about some of the people's lives that were, were literally transformed through what God revealed in the book of Romans. Many of the, the early church fathers, I mean, take Augustine for example, just his life. It was what God revealed in the book of Romans that, that established for him. It was that catalytic spark that, that ignites a passion in his heart for his relationship with the Lord that would become his ministry as one of the early church fathers. Martin Luther, just thinking about his role in the Reformation and, and how it was the literally the book of Romans, again, just like a spark that ignited a fire in his heart that led to uh, the Reformation. Um, Wesley, same thing, the revival that broke out in the wake of what God did in the heart of John Wesley. I mean, all of these are things that really the Spirit of God taking the word that was revealed in the book of Romans and doing something supernatural. So it, it excites me anytime I read the book of Romans just because of the clarity in this book around what it means to walk in right relationship with the Lord. And so I'm excited tonight that we will at least get to explore, hopefully, uh, the first 17 verses in chapter 1 of Romans and see what the Lord might reveal to us. And so if you've got your Bible, why don't I just read those first 17 verses and then we're just going to walk through these verses and I want to share some observations that the Lord has given to me in my study of this book and just pray that that is an encouragement to you and a help to you as you seek to continue in your walk with the Lord. So let me read from Romans chapter 1, beginning with verse 1 down to verse 17. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand, through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. That's a mouthful, isn't it? A long, long sentence with a lot of phrases. Let's pick up verse 6 
including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just pause there instead of continuing to read and and let's just unpack what we've read already in those first few verses. First of all, the first word that, that we see is the name of the author. And this is, there's no debate around, really around the author of the book of Romans. It's quite clear. And, and even here, as he is introducing himself, he gives us his name, Paul. Now, we know that there's a backstory on this author's life, correct? We hear him here in these verses, these first few verses. And by the way, this is one of the more lengthy introductions that Paul would give of himself in all of the epistles that he would write. And in this lengthy introduction of himself, there are a lot of things that he says about himself that are current realities. But we know that though they are the current realities, we know that there's a backstory that's worth reflecting on because the Paul who authors this letter has actually experienced a radical transformation in his life that would be part of what he is even going to express as he writes this letter to the Christians in Rome. We know of... Paul, an old Paul, do we not? He had a different name, changed the first letter in his name. He used to be called Saul. Paul, in his earlier years, was Saul. Saul was very zealous, as is Paul. We will see, and we've been studying the book of Acts, there's no shortage of passion and commitment in the life of Paul. Would you agree? He is a passionate, committed servant of the Lord. And he was also, in his old state, very zealous. He was very passionate in that day as well. But he was on a different mission when his name was Saul. His earlier mission was a mission to, to punish. His earlier mission was to condemn. His earlier mission, even because of his passion, be willing to take part in the killing of Christians. He was zealous, but he was zealous about the law. The old Paul, Saul, was someone who walked in what I would call self-reliance. Saul was someone who his hope of salvation rested in what he thought he could do himself to please God. He was committed at least to attempting to walk in complete obedience to all of the rules that God had laid out in the law and the other laws that had been added as well. He was a Pharisee who was strict, he was zealous, and he was on a mission, but he was on the wrong mission. And that's the old Paul that is Saul. Something happened to Saul, and you're going to remember 
what happened. The old Saul is on this Damascus road, and he's on a mission. He is acting in his zeal and his passion against the church, and he is actually working under the orders of the religious leaders. He's gathered his papers, his warrants, if you will, and he is going in search of those who were following after Jesus, claiming that he is the Messiah, and he is going to drag those people off to see them punished. He is on his mission to punish, to condemn. And you know what happens. A bright light that blinds him and a voice from heaven that speaks to him and the Lord interrupts him. The Lord intercepts him even in his zeal for the wrong things and reveals truth to him. You'll remember that God would send a servant of his to go and speak to Saul. And if we were to look in Acts chapter 19, verse 15, this servant that he chose to go and speak to Saul, in chapter 9, verse 15, God is going to tell to Ananias, this servant, listen to these words, he says, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Very important for us to take note of that statement. Because at this point in the story, Saul is still the same old guy with the same old zeal and hatred against the church, with the same old disbelief and doubt that Jesus is the Messiah. At this point, he's only blind and haven't heard a voice and waiting for Ananias to come. And even before anything else happens, the Lord is already announcing his intention for Saul's life. He's already speaking of him, saying, He is my chosen instrument. And his mission is to carry my name among the Gentiles, before the Gentiles, and before the kings, and before the children of Israel. If we look at verse 18, it says that Ananias goes and the scales literally fall from Saul's eyes. He regains his sight. He takes baptism. And what happens immediately after his baptism? It's a remarkable, talk about a radical transformation. Talk about turning something on a dime, so to speak. Saul moves from that zeal to punish, to condemn, to kill. And on a dime, verse 20 says, immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. Immediately, he begins to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ. Saul becomes Paul, and he is now going to be on a mission to bless, to save, to deliver. Now he's going to be zealous about 
proclaiming a message of grace. Not the law, but a message of grace. He'll move from being self-reliant to now being Christ-reliant. His hope will no longer rest on what he can do for God, but on what God has done for him. Where he was committed to walking in obedience out of an obligation to keep rules, now he's committed to walking in dependence on the Lord and on the grace that the Lord has poured out on him. Before he was ready to condemn and to kill anyone who exalted Christ. And now, and we just heard this, you may remember, anybody remember what Pastor Nathan told us Pastor Josh's favorite verse was? If you can remember, I got a prize. I'm going to give you a peppermint when this is all over with. Whoever can remember Pastor Josh's favorite verse, there's a lot on the line. A peppermint is on the line. Who remembers? 2024, who said that? Hey, all right, David. Acts 2024. Anybody remember what Acts 2024 says? Flip over there real quick. Powerful verse. Here is, here is Saul, who has become Paul, who was prepared to kill those who exalted Christ. And now in Acts 2024, 20, he says, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He says that after he is warned by the believers around him that, hey, prison and hardship are awaiting you. If you go to Jerusalem, it's going to get ugly. The same things that you were doing are going to be done to you. In the next chapter, we'll probably hear about it this Sunday, a prophet is going to take a belt, remember, and bind him and speak of these are the things that will happen if you go. And here the one who was willing to kill is willing now to even die to be faithful to the call that God has placed on his life. Saul has experienced radical transformation. And that's what the gospel does. Amen? It radically reorients the life of the person it touches. And Paul's entire ministry, I mean, I, I think it's well said in 2 Corinthians. And it would make sense because Paul would, would write this letter. But listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says in verse 4 and following, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient. And listen what's sufficient for. Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. 
For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Oh, this is Paul's testimony when he was zealous about his duty to the letter of the law. All he could hope for would be death because you know as well as I do, none of us can live up to the righteous requirements of the law. None of us can produce in our own strength, by our own willpower, righteousness that would please the Lord. Praise the Lord. Paul here is speaking of a new ministry he's been giving, a new covenant, one of the Spirit that gives life. And Paul has been radically transformed. And the person who's writing this letter to a group of believers that have never met him before, this is a church that he did not plant. And so these are people that would not know who he was as he introduces himself as Paul. But we know this backstory that is so relevant. We look on at the introduction. The next thing that Paul says as he introduces himself is, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. So he is identifying himself with a word that was very familiar in the Roman Empire. There were literally millions of doulos. That would be the, the Greek word that he used there to introduce himself. He said, Paul, a doulos, a servant or a slave, a bond slave is what he's identifying himself as. And a slave was basically someone who was without any ownership rights of their own life. They were literally the property of someone else. A bond servant was someone who would willfully live under the authority of another. And Paul is saying that he is not just a servant in any old master's household. He identifies himself as a slave or a bond slave, willfully living under the authority of his master, who he names here as Christ Jesus. Paul has a new master. That radical transformation that he had on the Damascus Road represented also a transfer of ownership in his life. He was transferred now belonging to the Lord and willfully living under the authority of Jesus Christ. Remember that phrase back from Acts 9.15 when he's on the Damascus Road? He was called a chosen instrument. The Lord had selected him to be his bond servant. Let's look at what he says next. The next thing he says to introduce himself is that he is an apostle. What does that word mean, an apostle? That word literally means one who is sent. Uh, the word apostle is someone who is commissioned 
to be on a mission. They have been sent on a mission. And the particular mission that Paul has been sent on is the foundation-laying work of missions. God was setting Paul apart. Remember what he said? To carry his name to the Gentiles, to the kings, and even to the children of Israel. So he is a sent one who is commissioned to live on a mission. Now we know that the apostles we read about, the original apostles that we read about in the book of Acts, a special group of men who had been selected. Now these were men who were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ and they were sent out on his behalf literally to pioneer that work in the first century. But in this case, uh, although Paul also is in that category, he had his encounter with Christ there on the Damascus Road. The idea of being sent ones did not die in the first century. Now, maybe the idea of the capital A apostle, those select ones who were with Christ after the resurrection, maybe that did. But we all know if we have read our New Testament, and if we went through the month of impact, we emphasize this strongly. If you are saved, you are sent. Which means we could identify ourselves even with, Paul, with what Paul is saying here in that we also have been commissioned on a mission to pioneer the gospel into the lives of those around us who have not yet come to faith in Christ. Paul was a chosen instrument. Brother and sister, if you are saved, you are also a chosen instrument. The next thing Paul says in introduction is that he has been set apart for the gospel of God. You just imagine that, set apart for the gospel of God. It's, it's like there's this group of people, but it's this setting apart of an individual. It's this, I'm choosing you to set you apart for something specific that you've been given to do. Of course, Ananias had already heard what Paul's setting apart was for. He was set apart to carry the name of Christ, right? And so here, very specifically, Paul will say he was set apart for the gospel of God. He was set apart to be a messenger of the gospel of God. What does the word gospel mean? Literally, what does it mean? Good news. And so as Paul introduces himself here in this verse, he is saying, I have been set apart to be a messenger of God's good news. And I would say that you and I share that in common with Paul. We too have been set apart and entrusted with, and if we need scriptural evidence for that, if we were to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, speaks so clearly about 
how we have had our Damascus Road experience. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a, he's a new creation. Just like Saul on that Damascus Road, scales fell from his eyes and he was made new. We have been, it goes on to say he's a new creation. He has been reconciled to God. And then it goes on to say, and given the ministry of reconciliation. Verses 18 and 19 speak of him entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. What is the message of reconciliation? It's the gospel of God. It's the good news of God that, that Paul is saying here he is a messenger of. It is the good news of the gospel. I want you to take a quick look at 1 Corinthians 15. I want you to see a short summary of what Paul would say about the gospel message that he had been called to proclaim. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning with verse 1, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. So if you are wondering, well, what was Paul's gospel? We, we, we know that the gospel presentation that, that we've been given as a church, as a tool for us to use is we use the three circles, right? How many of you have used the three circles? Or at least you've learned the three circles, right? That's our method for sharing the gospel. So if I were speaking to you, I would say, now, let me remind you of the gospel that I have preached. I would, I would get my whiteboard marker and the whiteboard, and I would start drawing them circles. Now, here's the gospel that I preached. So Paul is saying, let me remind you of the gospel that I preached. And here is the gospel that he preached he said, for I delivered, this is verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Paul's gospel message was fairly simple, wasn't it? Christ died for our sins as the scriptures, when he's talking about the scriptures, as the Old Testament scriptures had prophesied he would die, he died for our sins. And as the Old Testament scriptures prophesied that he would be resurrected, that he would be raised to life, he was raised to life. And on the other side of his resurrection, he appeared to more than 500 people. And so still living at the time of this writing, there were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ people that had seen the wounds in his hands and feet and sides, people who had bore witness to the brutal events that took place on that hill called Golgotha, saw the resurrected Christ. That was the short version 
of Paul's gospel. It's interesting to me as we get back to Romans, some of the things that he will say about his gospel that really correspond to what he says here in Corinthians as the summary of his gospel. Notice what he says. Set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Sounds a lot like what he just said, isn't it? That he died according to the Scriptures, that he was raised raised according to the Scriptures. He is speaking of the prophetic words, the, the more than 300 prophecies that are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you realize that? There are more than 300 unique prophecies that we find in the Old Testament that point towards Jesus as our Messiah. If we were to just take the categories of books in the Old Testament, we got the original five books there, the books of the law, the Torah or the Pentateuch, those first five books. Is there a prophecy in those five books that would point to Christ? Absolutely. As early as Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, very shortly after the fall of Adam and Eve, a promise was made that a deliverer would come who would have his heel bruised, but ultimately he would do what? He would crush the head of the serpent. This is pointing to Christ. I mean, that's in Genesis. I mean, we're, we're moving through uh, the, the book of Leviticus now. Of course, we're singing that book. The book of Exodus. Is there a prophecy? Anybody remember something called the Passover? Y'all heard of that before? It's not a new thing, is it? The Passover, remember that? This is a, a foreshadowing of what Christ himself would do for us that he would be the one whose blood was shed and would be placed not on the doorpost of our homes, but would cover our sinful hearts so that death would pass over and we could be fully alive with the Spirit of God. The prophecies are certainly there in the books of the law. The prophecies are there in the historical books. We can go to, to Samuel. We can read in, in 2 Samuel and hear about the promises that were made to King David and the line of kings that would come from him and the establishing of a, a forever kingdom. And who does that kingdom and that, that prophecy of the kingdom and the kingship find fulfillment in? Luke chapter 1 tells us it finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. The historical books certainly prophesy to us, helping us embrace this gospel message as the truth. The poetic books do. Psalm 22. I'll read Psalm 22 sometime. Read about the suffering servant and see Christ on the pages of that beautiful psalm that describe what was done so that you and I could be forgiven for our sin, from our sin. The prophetic books. Isaiah. Take Isaiah 53, verse 6 
verses 5 and 6, for example. In Isaiah 53, we find out about a lamb who dies in our place. It talks about our sins being laid on him and him being pierced for our transgressions. This is a prophecy that finds its fulfillment in the gospel that Paul preached. When Paul says it was promised beforehand, the people who were familiar with those Old Testament books would know exactly um, where these prophecies found their fulfillment and they would rejoice that their deliverer had come. Notice what he goes on to say. He says that it was promised beforehand and then he says concerning his son. I want you to look at that for a moment. Concerning his son, there are two things it says here about concerning his son. One, it says that his son was descended from David according to the flesh. Now, we've already mentioned 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16 is, is where we, we get that prophetic word that's given about a son that's going to build this house for the Lord, but then the lineage that is going to lead to that eternal kingship. And so when he says here about his son that descended from David, this is so that we get this picture that, that Jesus did come from the line of, of David. He did come through that lineage. But I think it is also for us to, to catch a glimpse of the, the humanity of Jesus, the human side of Jesus. that he And this is mysterious for us. It's, it's hard for us to grasp this. But somehow God takes on flesh and literally becomes a man. And so he descended from David is pointing towards his humanity, and that he came from the right line. So he is the right person to receive kingship and to have authority over our lives. But it also goes on to say something else. He's not only declared to be the son of God, excuse me, descended from David, but it also says in verse 4, he was declared to be the son of God in power by the resurrection. And so we're getting both sides of his humanity and his divinity here. From the human side, he descends from David. He's in the right line. He's 100% man, fully man. But from the other side, by his resurrection from the dead, he is declared to be the son of God. He is also 100% God. He is the God-man, and the gospel message is a message about the Son of God, who is 100% man, 100% God. He goes on to, to name him the Son of God in power, and he names him Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ our Lord. He's our Messiah. He's the anointed one. He is the, the long-awaited deliverer that was spoken of all the way back in Genesis 3.15. 
when the crisis of lostness entered the world and God said, I've got a solution. I'm going to bring a deliverer, Jesus, by being called here, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul is pointing to him as that long-awaited deliverer that the people should have been waiting for. And he calls him our Lord. Remember what we said earlier about Paul identifying himself as a servant? When we hear that word, Lord, now we're tapping into who the master is, who it is that is the owner, who it is that has purchased and who has the authority and all rights of ownership of Paul because he purchased him, of Stephen because he purchased me, and of you because with his own blood he purchased you. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, 19 and 20 reminds us that we are not our own. But we have been bought with a price. And that price is the precious blood of Jesus who is identified here as the Messiah, the long-awaited deliverer, and our Lord and Master. Real quick, to summarize how we can easily remember the gospel. Just, I want you to hang on to this acrostic. If you got a piece of paper, why don't you just write the word gospel down long ways? You know what I mean by that? I'm going to turn my, this way. So G-O-S, like that. I turned away from the mic. Did y'all hear those letters? G-O-S-P-E-L is how we spell gospel. When... Paul identifies himself here as a messenger. He's been set apart for the gospel of God. I want you to think of this acrostic as a way of remembering the gospel message that we too are being sent to declare to those around us. The G in gospel should make us remember that the gospel, it is, remember, it was God's gospel is what Paul called it. And so the gospel begins with news about God himself, about God's nature, about God's character. What do we know about God's nature and his character? How would you describe God? If I were to say, well, well, tell me about God's nature and his character. What words would you use to describe his character and nature? I didn't hear that. Would someone say holy? Yeah, I would say holy. He is holy. And as we think about him being holy being set apart, being without sin, being pure, being the standard, actually, of holiness by which we will be measured, by which our works would be measured. He is holy. 
And so we remember first the G stands for God's character nature, that he is holy. And then we think about the O in gospel. The O in gospel reminds us of the offense of sin. Whose offense? Who has offended God by sinning? We all have. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the, the good news about God is that He is holy and pure and perfect. And then the bad news is that, that we have offended this holy God by walking in willful rebellion against Him. And by the way, we are sinners by our nature and by our choice. We were born in iniquity. We were born with a nature, with a bend towards rebellion against God. And we will all act towards that bend and fail God with our actions. We're all guilty. And we know that sin carries a consequence. The consequence of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. So the G is God's character. The O is the offense of sin. And then the consequence of death that comes, which means death, meaning we will all die one day physically, but also meaning death that we are separated from God. And if something doesn't change for us, we will spend eternity separated from God. Then we get to the S. The S in gospel stands for the sacrifice of Jesus. As a substitute for us, remember the prophecy we talked about earlier in Isaiah? That our sins were laid on Him? The sacrifice of Jesus is sufficient to provide a covering for our sin. The S reminds us of the death and resurrection of Jesus and that that and that alone is sufficient to save us. The P in gospel. The P in gospel stands for personal response. None of us have a testimony of, well, I've always been Christian. My, my parents were Christian. I was born in a Christian home. I, that, that won't work for us before a holy God. There's a personal response that must come from every person who hears the gospel. When we hear of our sin and how that breaks our fellowship with God. Either the weight of conviction that the Spirit brings falls heavy on our hearts, and we believe the gospel and repent and turn to follow Jesus, or we ignore the gospel and we carry on in our rebellion against Him. But all of us, must respond, and it's a personal response. And the only right response to the gospel is faith and repentance. 
The E in gospel is eternal urgency. There is an eternal urgency that should motivate us to consider the claims of the gospel. We've already said it. Sin left unforgiven will result in eternal condemnation. Nobody likes to talk about the subject of hell. But we can't be Bible believers without embracing the reality of a literal hell where people who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ will spend eternity. So there is an eternal urgency that should drive us both to respond to the gospel and to steward the gospel or share the gospel with others. Amen? The L in gospel stands for life transformation. A right response to the gospel will bring transformation to the person who embraces that message by faith. Now, I wish we had a good example of someone's life who was transformed to reflect on together tonight. I just can't seem to think of one. But maybe we could just look back to the first word in verse 1, which is the name Paul. And we remember that he was Saul. And it was the good news about Jesus. It was the conviction and the grace of God, the conviction of the Holy Spirit by the grace of God that caused the scales to fall from his eyes. For him to believe to turn, to take baptism and publicly identify as someone who's zealous about a new mission, even willing to die for that mission. Life transformation comes when we respond rightly to the gospel. There is so much more Aren't you glad I didn't read the rest of the verses? Because then, yeah. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, an apostle set apart for the good news of God, the gospel that we have described. I hope we get a chance to look later at some of the things that he will say in these remaining verses that will compel us to identify ourselves in the same way that Paul is identifying himself here. And that would be my challenge for you tonight. If there's a point of application for every person in the room, it would be what I said earlier. 
Think back to eternal urgency. Considering the claims of the gospel, have you responded in faith and repentance? If not, can I plead with you tonight? Give up your zeal for whatever other mission, whatever other agenda you may be pursuing. Turn from sin and trust Christ and be saved. Second point of application for most of you in this room, because I feel like most of you in this room have already turned and trusted Christ. But in light of the eternal urgency, would you recommit yourself tonight to being a servant of Jesus Christ, a slave to Him, willfully placing yourself in submission to His authority? Would you identify yourself as someone who's been sent on a mission? And would you identify as someone who has been set apart with the G-O-S-P-E-L gospel? Let's live for the one who purchased us by His blood and bring glory and honor to Him. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm thankful for your word. I know that you are speaking because this is your word. And your word is alive and active. And it never returns void. And so I am confident in this moment. It is not me who is working. It is your word that will work in the hearts of your people. And so I pray as your spirit uses the word to convict hearts of whatever conviction there's, there's a need for, I pray for a right response from every person in this room. Whether it's the response of, I want to turn from sin and trust Christ as my Savior and Lord, or if it's the response of, I want to live as a servant an apostle as one set apart with the gospel. Bring about the right response in your people's hearts today and be glorified as you do so. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen.